Thank you for joining us for the study of God's Word today. Grab a Bible and listen carefully as God will be speaking to us through His Word today. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Please take your Bible and turn with me to the epistle of Peter, the second epistle of the Apostle Peter. And this morning, we're going to pick up where we left off last week. We're going to study verses 9, excuse me, 8 through 11 together. It was the spring of my 10th year. I was a fourth grader. And my aunt came to stay with us for a period of time because her husband was in the hospital in the city in which we lived. And she was quite the gardener. In fact, I would describe her as a master gardener. Her garden in West Tennessee was the envy of all the neighborhood. And she grew the most delicious assortment of vegetables and fruit in that garden. And she suggested to me, Mike, would you like for us to plant a garden? And I said, I've never thought about that, but it sounds like fun. And so she told me what we were going to have to do. We had to find a piece of ground in what was a rather small backyard, and we found that. And the plot of ground that we prepared for the garden was probably, I don't remember the exact size, probably somewhere in the neighborhood of six by 12 feet. Not very big at all. Then, she said, we're gonna need some tools. We'll need a shovel and we'll need a hoe. We're also going to need some seed and we're gonna plow that ground up with the tools we have and we're gonna plant those seeds and then we're gonna water the ground and then we're going to see what happens. We did that, and I was so interested in it, even though it had not been my idea, that every day when I would come home from school, I was in the fourth grade, I would come home, and I would want to see if any of those plants which had been planted were popping through the ground. And eventually they began to do that. And it was not long before I had to weed the garden, and there were some cutting worms when the tomato plants got large enough and I had to do something to get rid of them, use some insecticide, probably it's been so many years I can't remember exactly what I did, but it turned out beautifully. I remember sitting at the table on more than one occasion during that spring into the early summer, enjoying the fruit of my labor. My mother would almost every meal have some of those vegetables. They were all what would comprise a good salad. Lettuce, tomatoes, carrots, onions, and radishes. I remember it quite fully. My idea was not my idea. It was my aunt's idea. She left before the season was over. Her husband got well enough to go home to where they lived and I continued to tend the garden. Do you know there's no sequel to that story for me? I never planted another garden. 
despite the fact that it was a positive experience for me. I was thinking about this in relationship to this passage of Scripture and to our relationships to God. We know that Jesus is the master gardener of our souls. He is the one who plants his seed in the hearts of people like you and me. And the resultant effect of that is there is life that comes into our souls. The seed is the word of God. It germinates and it produces his life in our life. And we being receptive soil, we are called to give that piece of ground we might call our gardens, our souls, proper care. And the care that we're to give them is not to be occasional, nor is it to be casual. It is to be something that we approach with a lot of them and vinegar. In fact, there's a word that's used in this first chapter twice. It's the word diligence. And this word diligence is a word that suggests quick movement on behalf of someone else. Well, it's on the behalf of the Lord himself. He is the master gardener. He is the owner of you and me if we know him. And let's not forget that this book was not written to unbelievers. It was written to people who know Jesus Christ. If you are here today and you are a seeker, you do not know the Lord yet, you're interested in possibly knowing, eavesdrop on what is being said. It will have implications for your life going forward if you embrace the person of Jesus Christ and offer your life as a means whereby he can plant a garden and accomplish great things in and through your life. I'm asking a basic question to you this morning. How does your spiritual garden grow today? Is it in good shape? Is it a fruit-bearing garden? Well, this passage of Scripture gives us information about how we can take care of the garden of our soul, where the Lord has planted his seed. The first thing which surfaces in this passage of Scripture is found in verse 8, the first part of verse 8, and that is this the idea of the composition of the garden that Christ has planted in our hearts is hinted at strongly in this verse. Look at verse 8. For if these qualities are yours, let me pause lest I forget it. The two words translated are yours are words which suggest that these qualities are ours who know Christ, and they're always going to be ours. They're not qualities that will be taken away from us. They can lie dormant for sure, and we're going to see how that works in just a moment as we look at these qualities. And these qualities, this phrase, these qualities refers to what we looked at last week in verses 5, 6, and 7. Let me make a quick review for you. And look at those seven things. And don't let the fact that there's seven of them miss your notice because we know the word seven is the perfect number in Scripture. The first expression is translated by the New American Standard Bible in verse 5 as moral excellence. 
Do you remember what we discovered last week regarding what that really means? The word is the word which suggests energy. It's no ordinary energy. It's not the energy that I work up in my heart when I get real fired up. Rather, it is the energy of none other than the Holy Spirit of God. We might call it the power of the Holy Spirit. Let me make this observation, too, about these seven qualities. They build on those which have come before. The foundation of these qualities is, in fact, the person and power of the Holy Spirit. Moral excellence, we are told, we are to add to that, the word is knowledge. We saw what that meant. It means practical knowledge. It has to do with our understanding, and I believe in this particular instance, it has to do with understanding the truth that's found in the word of God. And so the Holy Spirit is the one who inspired people to write the Bible. We're going to look at that sometime in the book of 2 Peter. But not only that, the Holy Spirit is the one who teaches us. If you get anything from this message today, it will be because the Holy Spirit teaches you. Anytime I open the Bible to read it, there is the likelihood the high probability, if I come in the right frame of mind to hear what God has to say, He will speak to me. It's not because I'm special. It's because I'm a child of God and I am indwelled by the Holy Spirit of God. And that would be true for you as well. So you have moral excellence. We are told to add to that knowledge and to knowledge self-control. That knowledge from the Scripture indicates that which is pleasing to God as over against that that is displeasing to God. You might say that which is good from God's point of view and what He wants from us versus that which is evil. And when we have self-control, we need to know what we are to have self-control over. And actually, as we saw last week, our self-control is to be exercised over our own selfishness, which the Bible calls our flesh that part of us that is not under the controlling influence of the Holy Spirit. So we, by God's grace, are able to ride herd and get our flesh corralled. And this is the third thing. Self-control is followed by the word perseverance. Add to your self-control perseverance. How are you faring, by the way? Do you have self-control in your life? Is your life out of your own control? Sometimes we feel like, I just can't avoid thinking that way, acting that way, speaking that way. Well, the good news is you can. And it's not a matter of what you feel. We act and run on feelings way too frequently. We need to know what God says. That's what the scripture says we have. It's, our, it's ours because of what Scripture says and what God has done for us in the Holy Spirit. And we have the power of the Spirit. We have knowledge. We have self-control. We can trust the Lord for that. And then perseverance. Why do you think perseverance follows this concept of self-control? Because this life is a difficult life. And we are engaged in a battle. The Bible says 
that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the authorities and powers of this dark world and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. We have an arch enemy. Satan is his name. And he has a domain. It's described as the domain of darkness. It is the world. And the world is the system that's operated by the devil. He has been given control of that. And consequently, he uses the world. That's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. He uses that access to the world and the power he has over it to tempt us. And as I mentioned already, I did last week, I mentioned about the power of the flesh in our lives. This, I believe, is our biggest enemy. It's an internal enemy. But what the Word of God says is these enemies conspire against us, but we don't have to give in to them, do we? We can exercise self-control. And this requires perseverance. I can't tell you how many times a week I need perseverance. How about you? Well, let me back up just a moment. And let's consider what Paul writes to the Romans. He says, we, and this is an extraordinary statement he makes. It seems far-fetched really to us. He says, we exult in our tribulations. What would that mean? Troubles, we exult. What does that mean? Rejoice in our troubles. Uh, that sounds crazy, doesn't it? Well, I have that going on, but what we know is it says that we know the reason we can rejoice in our trouble is because that trouble leads to perseverance. And perseverance, if properly responded in the, that situation that finds you tribulating, that leads us to a better character. It's called a proven character and proven character hope, and hope does not disappoint. So I have that to deal with, just like many of you do. But I have a lot of lesser kinds of things that I need perseverance in. And let me give you an example. Are you ever in the line at a fast food place? I'm there three times a day, every day, it seems like. And Yesterday morning, I was so glad this morning, it was early when I got 4.30, I think. I'm not trying to impress you. I was just needing to do work on this sermon. That's why I was up that early. But I got there to get something, and I was so glad I was the only person there. Because last week, every time I seemed to get there, I would drive up and got in the wrong line, and about three other cars got through before me, and I think, this is not fair. Do you ever feel that way? That's silly, isn't it? I have to calm myself down and say, hey, get over yourself, right? That is sort of a silly illustration, I know that, regarding the need for this matter of perseverance. Do you know what the word perseverance means? And this is one of the components of those things which the garden in our souls that Christ has planted is comprised of. It means to be under something that's a heavy load, that's crushing you in some way, that's irritating you. It can be a big thing, it can be a little thing, but it's something that's really irritating to you. And to be under it and not to let it define you. 
in your life or in that moment in which you find yourself. This is so encouraging to me to think about that this is my privilege because I am a child of God. And if I trust the Lord, beginning with the Holy Spirit, progressing to knowledge of what the Scriptures say, mediated to me by the Holy Spirit, and then going on to exercise self-control in a situation that I need perseverance in. And then what does perseverance lead to? Godliness. I don't know if I can do justice in defining this for you, but let me try. It's the attitude of reverence that seeks to please God in all things, and especially as it relates to other people. I know you've considered what the Bible says about the importance of us loving each other. The passage which was read from John chapter 15 talks about the imperative nature. Jesus in more than one case in those few verses talks about he wants us to love one another. And then John, the gospel writer, later wrote what we know as the letter of 1 John. And in it he says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God and everyone that loveth knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. In the fourth chapter, later in that chapter, he says, if you say you love God and hate your brother, you are a liar. And have you noticed, if you studied 1 John, you know this, that there is not different shades of love or shades of hate. It's either love or hate. And so if I say I love God and have something against my brother, don't love my sister in Christ, then I'm a liar. Because how can I presume to say I know God whom I have not seen and hate my brother whom I have seen? And that leads to the last two properties here of these seven things, these qualities which Peter reads about, writes about and says, these are yours and they are increasing. Now he's optimistic perhaps, but he knows that when we grow spiritually, this message is about your and my spiritual growth. And the last verse of the book of 2 Peter says, keep on growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. There will never be a moment in my life when I am beyond the need to grow. You can't just finish the Bible, say, I've read it, I've read it 10 times, I've read it 15 times, I've memorized the 23rd Psalm, the 100th Psalm, the Lord's Prayer, I've memorized a bunch of it, I've not done enough. I need to be eager to want to keep on growing the rest of my life. This is one of the great things about being a Christian, isn't it? We can continue to go before the Lord, open the Bible, read the Word of God, fellowship with the Lord. And this is our privilege because we are children of God and we have been chosen by Him in Christ. And it's our opportunity to continue in this way. To add to godliness is brotherly kindness. And this is love for all mankind, not just those who are in the family of God. And then on top of that, there is love 
a special kind of love we have for our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's that self-giving kind of love. It's not based upon merit on the part of the one whom we love. Aren't you glad? Did we deserve the love of God? This is the word that's used to describe God's love throughout the New Testament. We didn't deserve his love, did we? He took the initiative. It was Jesus who took the initiative. He sought us out. We weren't seeking him. And so he was the one in obedience to God the Father, in, in really conjunction with his own desires because he loved us too. Otherwise, he would not have come into the world to give his life for us. First of all, if we're going to plant, the, take this garden that the master gardener has planted in our hearts by the seed of the word of God, and we're to see it properly cared for, we need to understand what the components are, the composition of it, and we need to know that those are ours now and they will be ours for the rest of our lives. Here's the second thing. The garden needs to be cultivated. Our garden's cultivation is very important. I like to ask you to look back up at the first part of verse 5 where the scripture says, Now for this reason also applying all diligence. And we are to be people who don't sit on our hands if we know Jesus. We're going to be motivated by the Spirit to the level that we submit to Him. And He is going to motivate us to minister to people. Through brotherly kindness, that would be to people in general. And Paul writes about this in Galatians 6.10. He says, do not lose heart. Do not grow weary in well-doing, but be kind and generous to all men, but especially to those who are the family of God. But that would include all men, including the brothers and sisters in Christ. Spiritual growth requires strenuous involvement on each individual's part. God has done his part, hasn't he? This is what this book is about in large measure. God has done his part. He saved us. And he continues to do his part as he's come to indwell us by the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ. But he wants us to respond. This is what Paul writes about in the book of Philippians 2, 12 and 13. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. The Lord is working in our hearts. He's working in my heart. He's working in your heart. If you're a child of God, he is working in you. He gives you promptings to relate to people who need a touch from the Lord. When he brings a name to your mind, he wants at least, I think, to pray for that person. But maybe even to pick up the phone and call the person. Maybe to write a note of encouragement to the person. Maybe he puts it on your heart to give something to help that person who is in need, to love your brothers and sisters in Christ. We are privileged to minister in the name of Christ to one another and also to other people. If you'll look now back at verse 8, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, 
they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'd like to look at the word useless there for a moment. It's used by James in James 2.20 where he says, faith without works is useless. It's the same word in the original language. And think about uselessness. I think one thing that I would fear most and do from time to time get a little jittery about is reaching a point in my existence when I'm no longer useful to the Lord. Do you ever think about that? As I've aged, that's, I think of that, about that a lot. Now, I know that's irrational because the Lord's going to use you and me until the moment we die. Do you know that? In the book of Acts 13, 36, the Bible says this about King David. It says, the Lord, after God had fulfilled his purpose for David in his own generation, David fell asleep. It means he died. So up until that moment, he was useful to the Lord. It may not have looked like it to other people at the end of his life. It may not have seemed like it to him. But that's beside the point. Our God is a sovereign God. He knows the end from the beginning in our lives. And he also knows the purpose that he created us for. You are not an accident. Nobody is an accident. And if you're a child of God, you can be sure there's purpose. It's in this passage of Scripture because the Holy Spirit lives in you. And in Ezekiel, when God is predicting the new covenant and how he's going to relate to us and we're part of that new covenant, he says, I'm going to put my spirit in you and I'm going to move you to do what I want you to do. That's encouraging. I hope it is to you. And this word useless suggests idleness. And the believer in Christ is not idle. Now, don't mishear what I'm saying. What the world considers a lack of idleness is not necessarily what God does. I think about the church at Ephesus that Jesus sends a letter to in the second chapter of Revelation. You know that church? Do you know what the scripture says about that church? That church was a veritable beehive of activity. If that church were in El Paso today, there would be something going on in that church building all day today and all day tomorrow and every day of the week. It would just be activity after activity after activity. Jesus actually commends them for their activity. Then he goes on to commend them for their doctrinal purity. We can be doctrinally sound as a church or as individuals and still have something that the Lord has against us. Because he goes on to say to that church at Ephesus, I have this against you. Do you remember what it was? You have left your first love. What was he alluding to? At least he was alluding to the fact they had marginalized him in their lives. Sometimes we can get so busy in the name of the Lord that we alienate the Lord. We put him in a corner and we don't really spend the time that is necessary to cultivate this kind of relationship that is spoken of in this passage of scripture that enables us to tend the garden of our soul. 
the way He intends for us to care for the garden that's there in our soul. So this idea of not being idle does not mean that you've got to be doing something all the time. Remember what we talked about two weeks ago, probably you do, about Martha and Mary, Jesus coming to the house. Martha's busying herself in the kitchen to get food. What's Mary doing? She's sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening. It torqued Martha. But Jesus said she has found the one thing that can never be taken away from her. It would seem like you're lazy to some people who are Christians if you're reading the Bible when they think there's something else you should be doing. But there's nothing more important you and I will ever do than sit down with an intention not to fulfill some sort of religious obligation, but to read the Bible and listen for the voice of Jesus and respond accordingly as we read that passage of Scripture. Before we leave verse 8, the Scripture says, They render you neither useless nor fruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The word true knowledge, we've seen it twice already in this short epistle. And this is different from the word knowledge that's mentioned in verse 5. The word knowledge, in this case, true knowledge, is intimate knowledge. It's a more intense knowledge. It's akin to the other knowledge. But it's much deeper. It's not simply knowing of somebody, it's knowing, I mean, about somebody, it's knowing of somebody to have a relationship with that person. That's important too. In the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 2, the scripture talks about Eli. You remember Eli? I met a boy. I shouldn't call him a boy, it'd been an insult to him. But a lot of people are boys to me anymore. You know, I'm so old. But this, this young man was waiting on me of all places at a restaurant. And I was in the car waiting him to bring me my food, right? And his name was Eli. I thought, wow. I said, is your name Elijah? He said, no, sir. It's Eli. Eli, he was the high priest of Israel when Samuel was born miraculously to, yeah, help me, Hannah, yeah, Hannah. And the result of that was this boy was taken when he was weaned to the temple to live there and be raised by the chief priest, Eli. Eli had two sons. And the Bible says something about them that's not very positive at all. In the second chapter of 1 Samuel, the scripture says, Eli's sons were useless men. And then... The writer goes on to describe why. They're useless men because they did not know God. If we are going to be useful to the Lord, we're going to have to know the Lord. We're going to have to have fellowship with Him. We're going to have to spend time, carve out time to be alone with Him, to grow in our relationship to Him. Let's move on now to the third thing about this garden. First of all, we're to understand what the composition of the garden is that Christ has planted in our hearts. Secondly, we're to do our part in cultivating that, developing those things in our lives by believing what God says and obeying God based on what he has taught us.
than the condition of our hearts. There are two possibilities. Now, I don't need to reiterate this, but I'm going to anyway, just in case you missed it. This is written to Christians. It's not written to non-believers. If you know Christ, this is for you. It's for me. And there are two possibilities in terms of the condition of our hearts, the garden spot that Christ has created in us. Look at verse 9. For he who lacks these qualities, and we're not going to go over them again. You know what they are. They're in verses 5 through 7. The person who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted. Wow. Blind. There's no need to elaborate on that. It's exactly what it says. Or short-sighted. The word in the original language sounds like this, and see if you don't see a word or a family of words which are derived from this word, of the Greek word. It's myopiac. Myopia. I am myopic physically. I have problems seeing distance. I can see up close, but without the aid of contacts or glasses, I couldn't tell who you were if you were in that door over there. I could see the form of a person, might be able to tell if it's a male or female, but I couldn't see your face well enough. Do you know what this communicates to us? That we can be blind. I thought that was something that only unbelieving people could experience. Well, not according to this passage of Scripture. If we don't continue to develop the traits of the Lord in us, and it's our responsibility to put ourselves in a position to grow, and we grow by eating the Word of God. First Peter 2.2 says that we are like newborn babies to crave the pure milk of the Word of God. And in so doing, we're going to ingest and ingest and digest, and that will be tr transformed into the kind of person that God wants and can use to glorify himself. As I was thinking about this idea of blindness for a believer, do you remember the story where Jesus heals a man of blindness? It's found in the Gospel of Mark. And the scripture says that he laid hands on him and he spit in the dirt, made some clay and put it on his eyes and he took it off and then he said, what do you see? And he says, I see men as trees walking, is what he said. That's a good description of a nearsighted person, isn't it? He had obscured vision. And then Jesus had to work on him some more. Christ begins working on us. He takes us where we are, and he works on us, and he works on us. But if we ignore the garden that he's planted in our hearts, we can become blind. I thought about the condition of cataracts. There must be more than one person in this room who has had cataract surgery. And I've heard many people who've had cataract surgery and they just raved about instantly, I got this cataract off and when the doctor took the patch off my eye, I could see. I thought I could see before. But the cataract, which was a growth over the eye, you know that, didn't let the light in and it was much dimmer, dingier. But when he removed the cataract, I could see. You know, the Lord does surgery on our eyes. He's a great physician. I'm talking about the spiritual eyes now. 
and he will take those off. And in order for that to happen, the Bible says where there's no vision, the people perish. Are you familiar with that verse of scripture in Proverbs 29? And that is translated by the more relevant translations, those that are newer and more communicative. It says where there is no revelation, that's the better translation, where there's no revelation, the people cast off restraint. There are two ways that we don't get revelation from God. One is because of sin in our heart. We can't understand it because it's blocked because of sin. And other times it's because we don't read the word or put ourselves in a position to hear the Bible taught so that we can grow in the Lord. The best thing you can do, as I've already said today, is let the Spirit of God teach you through your Bible. He will do that if you know Him. He's not reluctant to teach you. He wants to so that you can receive from Him what you need and apply it to your life regularly after having received it. So one possibility of the condition of my heart as a believer is I can be blind or nearsighted where I just have to squint and squint and squint and I still can't see what I'm wanting to see. And the result of that is I'm barren. I don't produce fruit. Or I can be fruitful and useful. This plays on the two words in verse 8, useless and unfruitful. I'm so grateful for John 15. Are you that passage which we read? because it speaks of the capacity which we have to bear fruit. How do we bear fruit? We abide in Christ. John 15 says in verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he or she bears much fruit. My responsibility is to abide in him. His life comes to me just like the life of a grapevine comes to the vine into the branches which actually bear the fruit. And the Lord goes on to say in John 15, verse 8, By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove that you are disciples of Christ. You see the importance of bearing fruit. Why were we created? To glorify the Lord. We glorify the Lord by bearing fruit. In the 15th chapter, once more, of John, the 16th verse, the last verse which we read together, you did not choose me, but I chose you, Jesus said, that you should go and bear fruit that remains. That idea is that the people who come out of our lives as a result of our having this kind of life, these seven qualities, and you could go to Galatians 5, 22 and 23 and get the same thing, the basic ideas. God will use you and me when we have the kind of character of the fruit of the Spirit of God. Then he will use us. As we go, we will bear fruit in the form of people. The Lord loves this church. Not because we're special, but because we're his children. He loves all of his churches. But he really wants us as a church to grow in being useful to him and more fruitful. And we don't have to stress and strain. We just have to obey, right? We just have to do what God says in his word. We have to believe a passage like this.
And it's not something that is beyond our reach because the Lord says in this passage that this is ours. Jesus says, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's being useful to the Lord. Writing to Timothy, the Apostle Paul in the second chapter, verse 21 says, if a man cleanses himself from these things, those things which would inhibit that person or from doing and being the person the Lord created him or her to be, if a person cleanses himself of these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified. That means set apart for God's use, useful to the master. Now listen to the way he concludes that statement. I love that statement. If we stopped there, we would have much to think about and to apply. But listen to the last thing. Prepared for every good work. God wants to prepare you and me to do his work. And he will do it if we yield ourselves to him, if we abide in Christ. Our discipleship is verified by our abiding in Christ and bearing much fruit. How do we know we are disciples of Christ? When we begin to behave like Christ. And remember, it's his life in us that empowers this. Now let's look at verse 10, and we're going to be done here in just a moment. Verse 10 says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent. He uses the same terminology he uses in verse 5, remembering what that terminology has to do. Quick movement on behalf of another. And in this case, we're doing it on behalf of the Lord, really, which will issue in ministry to other people. And he says, to make certain about his calling and his choosing you. We are called out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are his chosen people. Listen to this description of the doctrine of election as opposed to the doctrine of the will of man. I love what Michael Green, he's with the Lord now. He was a great teacher in the Anglican community in Great Britain, and he said the Bible seems to con contradict itself at points between the sovereignty of God and the freedom of man. I think it's much less confusing than we make it, frankly, because when you read the scripture. But he says the Bible doesn't really try to reconcile. It's not embarrassed. The word of God is not embarrassed by the fact that it has both things involved. But he says, Michael Green says, election comes from God alone. But one's behavior either proves or disproves that he or she is one of the elect. This is what this passage is about. Do I act like Christ? If I do resemble Jesus, it's proof that I am abiding in him. I'm his disciple. He wants to use me. In the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, Paul writes these words, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourself. Both words are better translated. Keep on testing yourself. Keep on examining yourself. You need regular checkups in your walk with the Lord. And we get these checkups when we study Scripture like we're studying today. 
And this is not an isolated passage. There are many other passages in the Bible we could go to and have the same result, basically. The last thing for emphasis is the culmination of proper care of the garden of our souls. Having looked at the composition of the garden, the cultivation of it, and the conditions that can exist in our hearts, the culmination. Look at verse 11. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. I would encourage you to go to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and read probably about the verse, first 20 verses of it and see how we who know Jesus, we're, we're, out of, we're not going to be condemned. In fact, look at the last line of verse 10 where Peter writes, for as long as you practice these things, what are these things? Those seven things that are mentioned. You will never stumble. And Peter uses a device that could be used and was often used by a Greek writer or speaker to make a statement in the strongest possible way negatively. He uses the double negative. This is literally what it says. You will not never stumble meaning you're not going to lose your faith. You're not going to lose your faith. So even if I got to the point where what is described in the book of 1 Corinthians 3 about the determination as to whether I built my life out of wood, hay, and straw would be selfishness, living for Mike Wood's glory, or whether I sought to live by the glory of God and for the glory of God. I wanted him to be glorified. And we're all mixed, aren't we? There's nobody who's going to be perfect in that regard. And then in 2 Corinthians 5.10, the Bible talks about how we're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. But we're going to have our entrance, all of us who know Christ, are going to have our entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Some will have greater reward. I'm not hung up on rewards, and it's quite fine for you to study rewards, and we know we're going to get some. Most of us are anyway, but if you didn't get one, if you just kind of get in by the skin of your teeth, so to speak, you're in. And a lot of people say, that's all I want. I just want in. Tell me what the minimum amount is to get in. Well, that's not the heart of a pe person who really is indwelled by the Holy Spirit. You want to know what you can do to honor the Lord, right? But let's say that was your case. You're going to be there if you trusted Christ, if Jesus has come and found you and you are a follower. It's awesome to think about that. But this idea of entrance into the eternal kingdom, this term was used in New Testament times to, descri to des describe a victor at the Olympic Games coming home to his town or village and the whole citizenry would go outside the gate and they would give him a royal hero's welcome in. That's the idea that God has about us if we are these kind of Christians, people who trust in the Lord. It will culminate in a great response in heaven when we 
reach that point. Abundant sowing equals abundant reaping. Do you know that? If I sow to the Spirit of God, I'm going to reap eternal life. If I sow to my own selfishness, the flesh, I'm going to reap corruption. We have an option as believers. I'd like to ask you to bow your heads for just a moment as we conclude our time. And let me ask the question once more. How does your spiritual garden grow today? Is it overgrown? Is it neglected? Is it infested with pests? Is it diseased? Do you need to get a fresh start in the Lord today? Well, if you do, what you need to do is just say, Lord, thank you for this time and what you've exposed to me in my own heart. And Lord, I ask you to forgive me for not cultivating my life in Christ as I ought to. And I'm asking you now, Lord, Holy Spirit, would you fill my heart, fill my life, take control of me, and help me not to live life in my own strength again. We ask this in Jesus' name, Lord. Amen. Amen. God bless you. If you didn't come last night, I'm hoping you'll join us tonight for Hope for Everyone. It's a great opportunity.